ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here as ever with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? I'm doing okay, Parv. Uh, kind of a weird day as we just got done discussing, um, but uh, hanging in there. Yeah, well, why, I mean, for the benefit of, because uh, I don't know exactly when this will go out, why, why don't you right. explain what you mean by that? Well, um, on a uh, wrestling-related note, which is, I mean, I, I guess every listener to this show is a wrestling fan, but uh, Dusty Rhodes passed away t- today, and uh, kind of oddly enough today, um, we're looking at a show that Dusty performed on, which there's not many super shows uh, coming up after this that will have Dusty on as a wrestler. I can yeah. only think of maybe like two or three, or maybe a few more. Uh, no, probably, I'd, I'd say less than five. Uh, so so that's kind of, I guess, ironic timing. Um, but we'll, we're going to get into Dusty a little bit more when we get to his match here. But uh, needless to say, it kind of took me by surprise when it broke at work, and then you saw everything kind of go through at... Uh, on Twitter and Facebook and on the message board with uh, people reminiscing. And I mean, even though Dusty was 69 years old, it seemed to come really surprised. I know uh, Dave Meltzer talked about how he was at the NXT performance center just yesterday, you know, helping the talent with the promos and everything was fine. So I guess he had kidney failures, the latest that we know, but a real, really a sad kind of a sad, somber day. Yeah, I mean, he's one of, like, um, obviously, you know, a while back, Vin, uh, Vin Garnier passed away, and um, that was kind of, like, you know, sad to see a, a legend passing, but we kind of expected that at, at right. some point, whereas this seemed to come completely out of the blue, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. And, I, I mean, it, it's kind of a strange thing, because, um, like, so, uh, here in the UK, obviously, you know, wrestling is not as... Um, kind of mainstream as it is uh maybe in the in in the states i i you know it doesn't really get a lot of mainstream coverage and a guy like dusty who wasn't on wwf tv all that much like you wonder how much people know or how how many people would pick up on it type thing i've actually been quite surprised just by how many kind of like non-wrestling fans and things have commented on it um all day really like since since it since it broke the BBC ran a news story on it. The Telegraph did. The Guardian did. So I don't know if that's just the world getting smaller, or whether Dusty was kind of like a like a kind of 
bigger international star than I than yeah. I thought. You know. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, living in Georgia, he obviously was a pretty big name here. But I mean, on the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution, there's a story that they posted just a quick blurb about that. And uh, I, I mean, I think I think if you look at the last thirty years, really since the rock and wrestling era. I, I mean, I mean, we can kind of go through that real quickly right here at the top of the names we think are bigger than Dusty from a, a household name yeah. standpoint. And I, I mean, I think it's like Hogan, Austin, Rock, Randy uh, Savage, Randy Savage, maybe Andre. Yeah. Andre. Uh, but but then after that, I I think or Flair, Flair for sure. Yeah. Um, and probably maybe John Cena, I would say. But after those, and even with John Cena, I'm wavering. I mean, I, I think Dusty certainly is more of a household name by a uh, pretty good margin compared to people like Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels or uh, people of that ilk or even, you know, Ricky Steamboats, kind of those type of names. Yeah. Uh, him, him comp to an ultimate warrior, he, he had more longevity. I think he seems more genuine. Uh, mm. So I... I I, well, I don't know. I, I, I think once you really, once I started kind of thinking about that, it's like, well, you know, this was somebody that my dad knows, my father-in-law knows, you know, all these other individuals, people at work knew when I asked them if they'd heard of him and people were coming to my cube because they knew I was a wrestling fan and asking if I'd heard. Uh, so, so it really kind of, he carried a good bit of clout, I would say. Yeah, well, I don't know. For whatever reason, that's been picked up big time by the uh, papers and things here, which I I just did, didn't expect. Like, I don't think they picked up on the, on the Vern story, for example. So, you know, just uh, just interesting. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I guess we'll talk about uh, uh, Dusty later on. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't have the kind of instant emotional because I got very emotional about Randy Savage, Chad. Right. Um, I didn't kind of feel that way um, uh, with with Dusty, um, but it was it it was pretty shocking when the when the news came out. I thought so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just me personally. I mean, the Chris Benoit situation was such a different, I guess, spectrum of emotions. But I would say probably since Eddie Guerrero's death, this one probably affected me the most. I, I think just because of the notoriety that he had, kind of. I mean, you know, like I like I said, with my familiarity with him, and then with my family. I mean, my dad impersonating Dusty and stuff like that. Yeah, I can see I can see that uh, as a big um, figure in kind of Georgia wrestling history as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, we're actually discussing something um, today, which is a, a little rewind in our in our WCW chi- timeline. Chad, we're going all the way back to was it January? Yeah. So, I mean, this show <laughs> we can call this kind of the Freebird show because we're watching it after the fact of you know <laughs> how they had the negative title ring. This is kind yeah. of the negative show, uh, the negative pay per view. But but this was the uh, Jan- this ha- the show happened January fourth, nineteen ninety two, which the January fourth Tokyo Dome show is now pretty much synonymous. And I mean, I think it's, I mean, at this point, it's probably a top three wrestling show worldwide yearly. Uh, you know, WrestleMania, 
uh, the January 4th Tokyo Dome and then, yeah. you know, maybe CMLL Anniversary or Triple Mania. Those are probably your big four uh, shows that happen every year. And But this was the first one that actually happened on January 4th. Um, now, they, they ran the Tokyo Dome before. Uh, obviously, we saw the Super Show last year. And New Japan had run the Tokyo Dome. And there had been some split shows like that one that has the Misa, uh, Masa Saito and Larry Sabisco match that you like part. Yeah. Um, but, but the, yeah, this was the first January 4th show that was in the Tokyo Dome. So, kind of a, a bit of history here um yeah. that they still do this 23 years later and they did a massive gate it was like over yeah. 60,000 right 65,000 yeah, business and and i mean maybe i guess we can kind of talk about this while we're setting the table for this show but i'm always perplexed kind of with the japanese business because uh, you know, New Japan has traditionally kind of been the number one, yeah. and even even at this time, all Japan was selling out Budokan. But you know, they—I don't think they could have drawn sixty thousand in Tokyo. I mean, they didn't run the Tokyo Dome till nineteen ninety-eight, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it always seems odd because it's not—it's not like the New Japan in-ring product is bad you know at all around this point you had three the three musketeers really coming into their own and yeah uh, a, a lot of stuff going their way but it, it's just I, maybe it's just because the style really resonates with me so much but like that all japan style from 90 to 93 it's almost like what more do you want in your promotion you know you got the old legend and jumbo with the old guard you got the new stars being pushed up the ranks effectively you got great matches you know no no quote-unquote angles because this is japan but just this great kind of layered hierarchical storytelling uh that makes every win mean something in some way. Uh, so it's always kind of been perplexing to me that still New Japan was the hotter company well, uh, throughout this time. It, isn't it just something as simple as, like, Anoki was just the biggest star? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of... I, I mean, I, I would... Maybe somebody more well-versed in the business side of Japan could set us, but I've always got that feeling that... It almost felt like an NWA 1989 versus WWF thing a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, you know, Anoki, Anoki is like a proper like legend, and you know, he was like a big deal, like a celebrity as well as a wrestler and all the rest right, of it. Right, right. So he's he was almost like a kind of a Japanese Hulk Hogan, if you want to put it yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, always bigger as far as a name than Baba, even though Baba certainly was a legend. It's a yeah, you know, a different a different podium from Anoki. Uh, and then I, I also wonder if uh, Ricky Choshu's got something to do with it as well. I mean, I, I look at this gate and I wonder, like, well, what's drawing the gate? It, it's, it's surely not the appearance of Lex Luger or the Steiners or whatever. It's surely Fujinami versus Choshu selling this house, right? Yeah, I would I would think so, but there, there's something interesting about... I mean, New Japan ran a lot of interpromotional stuff. Um, they did it with WCW here. Um, they start a feud in late 1992 with War, mm-hmm. uh, wrestling and romance, and that you know Ten Room Company coming in, and that I mean that the the, the that's really when War was most successful as a company, but you know that show did gangbusters, and that feud overall is just absolutely amazing. 
But in, then, I mean, later on in 1995, they went back to it again when UWFI uh, faced New Japan. And then you had the NWO Japan. So it's kind of like they always do these interpromotional rivalries. or I, I guess there's something more maybe heated. or It, it certainly feels like a promotion that has more kind of quote-unquote angles. Right, or, yeah. or or kind of that hatred in their storylines to some degree, whereas I mean Jumbo is a dick to Masawa and company, but it mostly happens within the ring. You don't see you know him coming out at the end of the match and getting into it and stuff like that. And you would see that in some of these War versus New Japan matches where. Hashimoto wouldn't be in the match, but him and Tenru are yelling at each other, shoving each other after the match and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah. maybe that has something to do with but, it. Like, imagine if you were a Japanese wrestling uh, purist, Chad, and you knew nothing about US wrestling, and you watched, like, 80s Crockett, and then you watch 80s WF, and you were like, how the hell were they... How the hell was this one drawing 70,000 people in yeah. this one? It's exactly the same, isn't it? Uh, kind of. Like, obviously, probably the gulf between the wrestling quality of uh, New Japan and All Japan is less than the gulf between WF and Crockett, but it's a similar deal, I think. Yeah, I I think it's fair and kind of interesting to look at. Um, Like, uh, I would be in... That's one thing that I haven't really looked at too much is the business side of uh, uh, Japanese wrestling, but um, I wonder how much... Uh, business Choshu did in 80, uh, 85 and 86 there when he jumped like how big a, how much of a major deal was that I wonder yeah um, oh. I, don't, I don't even know if we've got very uh, comprehensive accurate records to mm. be honest because I mean you know like even kind of notoriously worse than the WWL sort of does is the padding I mean, certainly this show from the long shots we saw looked pretty crowded. Yeah. But, I, I mean, when New Japan was in pretty hard times uh, in 2006, 2007 era, I mean, they I know one Tokyo Dome show, they had about 15,000 people, and they still claimed like 30, 35. So it's, it's pretty uh, ridiculous. You know, everything's super no vacancy, even though there may be less than capacity. So you so the, you think the figure may not be as high as six thousand? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just think you might. I mean, I know when I did my research for uh, Akira Taue for the Hall of Fame, the data I could find um, was. Mo- I mean, and that was during the hot time where you know pretty much legitimately all the Budokans were sold out, but yeah. you would see a spike sometimes. And then when I looked at the Noah stuff, when I knew Noah was really struggling. Or was not hot and certainly not selling out Budokan. You still saw like ten thousand, eleven thousand, and from the shots I've seen of that show, it didn't look like that was the case. Mm. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Maybe during low periods, it was certainly inflated. Yeah, the, the one other thing I I wonder about is Andre um, always worked the New Japan shows, right? He was yep. a New Japan guy. Yep. And I wonder if that may have helped as well, because, um, you know, like, in terms of, like, I can just see the Japanese marking out for Andre and and him being, like, like I'm, I'm just mean in terms of, like, when they were building the audience. Like, if you th- think about, like, a mainstream casual fan or whatever, 
they're they're, they're going to turn up to see like an Andre, and then fo- I'm just talking about like how somebody gets hooked on something and follows it. But if you, if you went to see Andre once and then you get hooked on the thing, that's how you build up a following. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess. But I mean, all Japan had funk, and yeah. Well, I'm just saying that I was just, like a cult. I mean, I. I'm just talking about like the mainstream, like a main. If you're like a mainstream uh, kind of casual fan, like Terry Funk is like something that appeals to hardcore fans as opposed to like the man on the street type of thing. Well, yeah, but I don't know in Japan because you still had like the the girls and the dressing up like him. I mean, it seems like it's a different. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe we can get some clarification on that. I mean, I, I certainly could see Andre as a draw, but. Hey, right. there, there was something about funk, but he did seem to kind of create fans that weren't normally fans. He, he had all those like singles and things he did, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's get. If anybody's got any further insight on um, like why New Japan was bigger than All Japan or anything like that, or on attendance, um, send them our way because we'd both be interested. Uh-huh. Guessing I know someone that has some opinions, but we'll probably not listen to this show. So, <laughs> um, okay. So um, the show starts off with Eric Bischoff in front of a green screen with the with, with the intro, which was all a bit weird. Um, I must say though, Chad, he was looking dashing, wasn't he? <laughs> Your impression on Bischoff grows like every show. Oh, when, when he turns heel and actually becomes like a good on-screen character, you may not know what to do with yourself. You may like overtake DiBiase. Come on, no, no, no. Um, I, I, I even liked him when he came back as the Silver Fox. Oh God! <laughs> I'm uh, in 1999. I'm uh, going through that year right now, and. It's when they start doing the reboots and Bischoff comes back and he's on commentary again. Yeah. And I'm telling you, you have never heard a worse announcer in your life. <laughs> he he makes uh, Mongo McMichael seem like Lance <laughs> Russell in his prime. It is just over the top. You know, Hogan, him, and, and this is when Hogan decides to come back and wear the red and yellow, and he's right. just screaming at the top of his lungs, and Hogan beats up people, and Bischoff's yelling, get him out of there, just in the most corny, cheesy, it is so bad, it, laughing it, at everything that's not funny. Is is this after the point where Russo, uh, where they do that horrible thing with uh, Hogan and Russo? This is pre-Russo coming in. Oh, so, but, but, yeah, so this is bad even before that begun. So it, it is quite the train wreck. Chad, if we ever get there when we've got white hairs on our heads, <laughs> that's going to be brutal. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the first match here is a, is a six-man, and uh, you may have to help me with some of these names. It's Jushin Thunder Liger, Masashi uh, Ayoagi, yeah. <laughs> Akira Nagami. Yep. Taking on Hiro Sato, yep. Super Strong Machine, and Noiro Honaga. Honagi, yeah. Honaga. <laughs> um, what do you think of uh, this opener? Well, I mean, we kind of just did our basic pre-chat. Uh, this this is a match I'm interested to hear what you think about it. Right. Because, because, because there was a good pace. Um, yep. and And they did do... I mean, it wasn't boring, and there was a lot of action, but I found it very, very kind of just 
you know, I would do a move, then this team would do a move. I, I didn't find any kind of overlapping threads with this match. And the other weird thing that I took note of during this match was the fact that Liger, you know, who Tony and JR were building up as the, the star of the show based on his notoriety in the States. But uh, every time he would come in, it was like they took over on him, which I thought was very odd. Yeah, um, well, I mean, my main uh, note on this is probably a bit similar to yours, Chad, which is that it felt like a, an exhibition match, basically. Like, this was an exhibition, you know, here's what I can do, here's what this guy yeah, can do. You yeah. know? But uh, I thought it was quite fun. You know, it was a bit of a, a, bit of a spot fest, basically. The bombs were flying everywhere and... Uh, you know, um, we saw the stiff kicks of, uh, what's his name, Ayoagi. <laughs> yeah. Now, he, he has, he's kind of an interesting guy. and um, He was laying in those kicks in, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he has sort of a, a shooty, I guess, style to him. But he is a, a very interesting kind of character overall. He has a match that's in, I think it's 1990. Let me look it up real quick. But it was in this promotion that was called Pioneer. Right. Uh, Or maybe that's... I think that's the same person. I'm almost sure. But now I'm going to fail. Yeah, it's got to be the same person. But it's this match with Ruma Go. And it is just the oddest match. Um, I don't... It's very weird. It has has still kicks, but then it also has sort of this like... uh, start stop situation to it right uh and it it, it was it's, it's a weird match to see but the strikes in it are absolutely uh nasty and then also i want to mention like i mean the thing with liger with this match is if uh him he he was really doing well um in the in the states of course with his feud with pillman but also in new japan around this time I know I haven't watched this match, but I was looking kind of at Charles's ratings through 1992. And on February 8th, he had a singles match with Honaga that Charles ranked at four and a half. And then two days later, he had a singles match with Pegasus Kid or Chris Benoit that he also ranked at four and a half. Uh, so, and then later on in 1992 is when he has the great series versus El Samurai which features maybe the best juniors match of the uh, decade, which is the best of the Super Juniors final. So uh, Liger was kind of on a roll at this time. So that's why I was really taken aback that he wasn't kind of treated as like the ace to me uh, in this match. In this match, it's kind of a weird how he was just buried in this six man as well in the opener. Like, yeah, um, is it were they like? Is was this like an ongoing feud or anything? Like, I just. Didn't, or was these just six guys thrown together for a match? I mean, I mean, I think certainly. I mean, Liger and Akira Nogami had their feud in 1991, and they're still seemed pretty high on Nogami at this time, and seemed like he could be kind of a pillar of the junior division. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't exactly know when he kind of fell off. It was sometime between then and later in the decade probably with the rise of individuals like Black Tiger and Pegasus Kid and, uh, you know, Sasuke as a freelancer coming in. And then when they had Otani and Koji Kanemoto coming in, 
Uh, Nogami is one of those guys that really got lost in the shuffle. But uh, Saito and Onaga were teaming up regularly around this time. But like I said, Onaga also would challenge Liger in junior matches. And then Super Strong Machine's always kind of that perennial guy that's just thrown into these types of matches, it seems like. Right. Uh, always there. So I don't think there was any like really overreaching, huge uh, agenda going on through this match. I didn't get that intention. But... Um, I don't. I mean. I mean. I guess we can go to our star ratings. I went. I, I went kind of. I thought this was kind of your basic two and a half for me, and I. I, th- I did think I could see somebody really getting into it, but just I guess the lack of structure from it, and also the way Liger was treated, and I, I, maybe I think this one really was kind of hindered by me watching some of the All Japan Six Mans I'm watching lately. From 1993, where yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, even somebody like Masawa when he was rising up the ranks, I don't think he'd get treated as poorly when he came into the matches Liger did here as your kind of captain of the team. Well, I've been looking for Meltzer's uh, thing. I don't know if he ever did give star ratings, but he doesn't give star ratings for this show from uh, in the January 10th uh, newsletter. I don't know if he then later gave it. Um, and I think it's because somebody sent a report in. He didn't go himself. Mm, that's interesting. Um, so I don't have star ratings from Meltzer for this show. So what was your star rating again, Chad? Two and a half. Two and a half. Well, I went with three. Yeah. Um, which wasn't far off. Um, I, I guess I found it, it was quite fun to hear JR and Shivani mark out for some of the moves. You know, yeah. There, there were some good bombs flying about, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was no story or anything to this match. It was just like... A showcase for New Japan talent. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was just like them saying to I don't know the like not only the sixty thousand people, but also to whoever was going to be watching back on WCW TV. Right. Here's what our guys can do, type thing. That, yeah. that, that's right. Um, yeah. Weirdly, um, uh, he's called Akira in big letters. Nagami is uh, apparently that was uh, like. A, I, that's how he was being billed. At this yeah, time. he and then later on in his career, he would kind of just go as Akira for a uh, good portion of it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. But. So, so the next matchup then is Arn Anderson and Larry Zbysko taking on, and again, you're going to have to help me with these names, yeah. Michiyoshi O'Hara yep. and Shiro uh, Koshinaka. Koshinaka, yeah. Koshinaka, okay. Um, and um, I have to say, I don't, I didn't know the these are two younger New Japan guys. And uh, I mean, I, would, I was uh, thinking about this recently, Chad. I would say about like ninety nine percent of my Japanese viewing has been all Japan. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I was a little bit out of. Uh, I didn't know who these guys were. <laughs> so, so you didn't know. Well, um, did you ever make it in the lucha stuff to Koshinaka versus uh, Tanako? No, I haven't gone that far. Okay. Well, I mean, Koshinaka, I'm kind of surprised you're not at least vaguely familiar with him. He's a, he's a pretty big name. He's kind of one of those... He's a very odd guy in that he, st- you know, he started out with a junior. He flipped from New Japan to All Japan, then came back to New Japan, and uh, a real mainstay. Right. And 
uh, in New Japan throughout the 90s. He, he looked then, like a youngster to me. Is he not that uh, Yeah, he'd been going for a while at this point because that Santanico match was 1984. Yeah. Well, I, so, I'm right yeah. around there in my, in my actual viewing, but, uh, you know, I've been, I've been right around there since 2013. Yes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he, he'd been... In for a while now. O'Hara was pretty much fresh off the dojo, right. um, so he was he was pretty green here. And O'Hara overall, and you know, it's his career arc wasn't too great. Um, Koshinaka is one of them interesting. I think he's a very polarizing worker overall. Um, if you watch his eighties Japan stuff, um, I mean, he utilizes the butt butt. And some other kind of annoying offense, right? Uh, but but his his matches usually have pretty sound structure, and I think he's a guy that I I really kind of go back and forth on him. Where I think he doesn't get his due, or he does get his his actual due with kind of the way he's remembered. But it's it's kind of tough to think of a level that he would be at for a U.S. worker. I, I, I was a, I was a little bit surprised by the booking here. Like I'd have thought, well, put Liger and one of those two other good dudes, you know, the uh, Akira or or the guy with the kicks. Put mm-hmm. put put one of the, put those two up against Arn and Larry, and put these two guys in the six man. Like that was what I thought. I was like, who would, like why are they putting? Because of all the Japanese workers we see, I think these two look like the kind of the smallest stars in the. In my mind, at least. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would think for sure O'Hara, but uh, certainly not Koshinaka at this point. Um, I mean, I mean, during that that war, New Japan feud that I referenced, Koshinaka was kind of like the first person uh, that would go up against Tenru in that feud in late nineteen ninety two. And uh, and you know Tenru would eventually graduate to versus Chosu and then versus Hashimoto, right? Um, but but you know Koshinaka was kind of that gatekeeper there, that first threat. He, he was like the master Fuchi of the crew, or whatever was he? Or yeah, like- well, I, I mean, like I said, it's very tough, kind of, for me to think of a uh, a uh, American comp. I mean, maybe like a Barry Wyndham, almost from a star right. standpoint. I okay. mean, he, I mean, he, it wouldn't be. I mean, you know, like if you look at Barry Windham and how many pay-per-views he main evented, there's not that many, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also someone that if for some reason at points in his career, if he was found in the uh, main event, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's that's crazy, you know, or they're really elevating him above what he should be. And Coach Janaka for a lot of his career is kind of in that same boat, you know. Not a top, probably a top 10 star in Japan. If you look at the country as a whole, at many points in his career, but you know, solidly in that level, second, third from the top, fourth from the top, that you could build out a card with. Right. All right. Okay. Well. Um. It. Well. Anyway, he he was uh, up against Arn and Larry here, and uh, <laughs> Jr. tried to explain. Uh, did you hear that? I don't know. Know if this was him kind of like backpedaling here or what, but. He tried to explain that even though Arn and Bobby Eaton are uh, tag champs at this point, right. poorly dangerously likes to switch it up and tag different alliance members together. <laughs> what did you think of that? <laughs> yeah, you had kind of... 
J.R. and Tony overall on this show, I couldn't decide whether I liked them or not. Because <laughs> on one point, I understand that for most of it, they were sort of educating the audience. And they had to sort of keep sort of a uh, storyline continuity as to what was actually going on when this aired. But it kind of seemed annoying at points, too. Like, how many times did we have to hear that the uh, audience is polite in Japan? So, <laughs> I mean, so they're, they're not bored. They're, <laughs> yeah, you may think the fans are bored here, fans, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, it, and I think it's the next match, but it's like when... I, I, yeah, it's the Dusty Dustin match, which we'll get to next, but when they do the double uh, noggin knocker and... Tony's like the crowd would go wild for that in the U.S. and hear nothing. I've written in my notes, count along with me how many generalizations about the Japanese yeah, Ross and Shivani yeah. can get into one show. You know, right, right. They were a little bit kind of like because it was literally like they st- it was started with just the crowd, but then they were just like, yeah, it's in the blood of the people. They just love authority and stuff like that. Right, like, right. It was really weird, it's kind of. <laughs> Really kind of gave a uh, history of the mindset of the Japanese here, like they were super knowledgeable. Anyway, I mean this this match is uh, I, and see this this match is odd because I have it ranked as the same as the first match, but I can right. see people being lower on it. But I, I think if you ask me one match to watch right now, I'd pick this one, and it's mainly for Zabisco yapping his mouth. Which I, I seem to give a pass more than most people. I think I enjoy Zabisco's work uh, more than most, even though it seems like he's getting a pretty good revival with PWO overall. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually someone I'm considering for the top 100 and the greatest wrestler ever. Uh, kind of filling out probably my bottom 10 uh, there. But but I mean I, I thought this match was mostly shtick with him yapping. Um, and, and I didn't see much from O'Hara here. He ha- has a wrestling background, and he displays that a little bit, but uh, not very much. And uh, Arn's able to hit the uh, spine buster for the win. I didn't think Arn did a whole lot here. You know, we we usually say like Arn doesn't do have a bad performance, but I thought this was as close to an unmemorable arm performance as i can recall uh seeing in a while um i'm not sure if i agree i mean did you read uh, matt d's essay ch- chat about this so uh, he, he mainly talked about this match and yeah. um like i read around i read around the show quite a bit um for some reason like i was just interested to see where people would go with it and like i'm always interested to see like the scott keith and things talk about japanese wrestling because it's quite an right, right. interesting little thing. Um, uh, and it, a lot of those guys, a lot of those older reviewers pointed out, like they criticised this match a lot because Larry Zabisco didn't adapt his style for the match. Yeah. Which, which is like a standard criticism of this match. And um, Matt D uh, disagrees with that. And he actually has a lot to say about like how it was actually just kind of a perfect performance for this setting type thing. I have to say, I didn't really notice anything much different either way. Um, like, to me, this is exactly what I'd expect Arn and Larry working in any 60,000-seater stadium. Like, so Arn is working... Like, I actually thought Arn looked pretty, like, crisp and, like, his execution was really spot on. Um, clearly, Larry was doing a lot more shtick than Arn was in this match. But, mm-hmm. like, he was playing to Rosette. I mean, that's what you have to do in a massive stadium. I don't know what you... Like, 
I don't know. It didn't seem that much out of place to me. I, I, I actually think that it's over because I've watched quite a lot of Japanese wrestling at this point, and like the the idea that nobody jaws is just nonsense. Like you just have to watch one one Terry Funk match to see that that isn't true. So like I don't know what the I don't know what this idea that Zabisco didn't adapt his style. Like what's that meant to mean? Like I, I don't know. It's just Japanese fans react in a slightly different way. Like yeah, you know. I, I mean I think it's just it's, but I do think it was like a Zabisco style. You know, I mean, he, he did his stuff. It was just in a different environment. But I don't think that in itself makes it a failure. Well, they seem to be reacting to him. You know, it yeah, wasn't I, like... I, I didn't think, well, I mean, to a degree. But I, mean, I, it, I it, didn't it think seemed, they... It seemed to me, though, that this, mat, this match in general just wasn't over with the crowd. Like, the crowd right. didn't really seem to care about the about the native guys for a start, to me. Like, that's how it came across. Like, they seem to care more about every single other match on this card, apart from this one. So, and I, I put that down. We, like, there's a moment where, um, was it Hara starts laying in elbows at one point? Yeah. And, like, the crowd seemed to wake up. And, like, even, like, Tony wakes up as well. But um, I didn't really think much of the Japanese team here at all. They didn't really do a lot for me. And Arn and Larry were Arn and Larry. So I gave it three st- I gave it three stars. I didn't oh, really... man. You, you went two and a half? Yeah, here. <laughs> I don't easy, know. Easy to please on this show. <laughs> Maybe I was in a good mood. <laughs> yeah, I think you were in a very good mood. I, I, I will say this show, again, I think came at a wrong time because I've been watching. Uh, I, I was on vacation last week at the beach and watched a good bit of 1993 stuff and yeah, and just watched a lot of kind of what I considered three and a half to four and a half star matches back to back to back and kind of coming back into the groove of things and this being the first full show I watched uh, it sort of took took the edge off of my wrestling enthusiasm a little bit I mean this is an hour and 45 minute show but as we'll see I, I didn't find a lot that I thought was really good <laughs> okay um well, I, I thought it was all right, you know. There, there it was. Um, so we have um, Dusty and Dustin Rhodes now taking on the team of Mr. Sato and Kim Duke. Kim the, Duck. Kim Duck, the the Korean, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, d- just before we get into the Dusty stuff, Chad, I have to say, um, is Mr. Sato the coolest dude in the entire world? Because... Uh, <laughs> I think he might be. <laughs> yeah, talk talk about the workers that have had a revival. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean that's someone where even when I was getting into Japanese wrestling in 2001 and up through watching stuff for Clarin, it feels like in the last five years he was up to the last five years he was known as the the you know the guy that pissed off people in McDonald's and got arrested. I mean with the uh, with Patera, um, I, I did think uh, that um, uh, the commentary team did do a good job of explaining that he was the mentor for uh, to Ricky Choshu. Right, uh, he was like a guy that should be treated with respect and stuff. Yeah, um, I thought Ross and Shawani did a decent job on that. Um, did show, okay, so before we get into this, do you want to just uh, talk about Dusty a little bit? 
um, and uh, kind of uh, what he meant to you as a wrestling fan. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I, I think Dusty, to me, is a great personification of a classic uh, American babyface. And, uh, and I don't, and what, like we talked about at the beginning of the show, maybe that doesn't resonate as much. Um, I'd, I'd be kind of interested to get Parv's take on this. But, I mean, I mean, just for some personal background, I mean, I my, uh, my uh, kind of childhood and growing up, I was in what would be considered the upper middle class of where I lived. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't like I grew up in an impoverished home and, you know, was eating beans for dinner like Dusty talks about in his promos or... I had a blue-collar dad. Uh, my dad worked a office job. But even beyond that, there's still a sense, and you know, now I'm an accountant, which mm-hmm. uh, the listeners know, but there's still a sense in America of uh, not being entitled. That's a very, um, you know, if, if someone is perceived as spoiled, that is a very bad characteristic trait so yeah. so even with me not you know having to struggle quote unquote financially throughout my childhood um and was a you know i was lucky enough to be able to go to college and stuff like that there's still a sense of you need to earn it so you know i had to get the good grades to earn it I, what now that i'm working you have to earn it and yeah. Dusty is someone that really personifies that, I think, in that he wasn't going to back down from any challenge. He certainly had physical limitations, which you could see. Uh, He looked like somebody that could, you know, he could show up at your home to do your cabinets or to do your plumbing work. I mean, he looked like that. He wasn't imposing in that regard. Um, he was just this big kind of jovial guy that could, you know, get pissed. He had a distinctive voice and he could really talk you into the building. And then I think beyond that, now as we've examined Dusty as the worker more the last few years, we see that, you know, it, it was a, I, I think we definitely shifted a bit and it's not about the amount of moves you do. It's the timing and the way you structure a match, I, I do think there's still been a, a pretty wide shift, I would say, in the yeah. past 10 years when somebody like Kurt Angle was universally praised uh, 13 years ago till where we're at now. Um, and so with that, Dusty's kind of got a bit of a rep bump in his actual in-ring work but Mm. but i think beyond that i mean you just look at his accolades throughout his wrestling career i mean as a wrestler he drew everywhere drew in florida you know he's synonymous with florida he's synonymous with crockett he's synonymous with georgia if you grew up in the late 80s somebody like justin rosero you know knows him as polka dot dusty and loves him still you know he's his guy in 1990 when he first started getting into wrestling in WWF, so he, he, you know, he worked there to a degree, even early on in his run, uh, with the stuff that y'all were looking at with Titans, he was over in MSG, yeah. Uh, so, so really, a, a, you know, as a worker, 
successful everywhere and then beyond that you got the booker you got the announcer you got the mentor so to me just like the complete package and you might be bitter and you might can say you know he hung on too long as a booker and he got too much of an ego at putting himself over but uh but i think at the end of the day dusty was certainly a, a very positive figure for professional wrestling and really a true person to look at as a role model and and i mean part of you know i i do like john cena in yeah. ring more than you but you look at John Cena as a character, and he, you know maybe it's because I'm not a kid when John Cena was a character. Well, you know when he was coming up the ranks. But there's just so, so like in the promos that Dusty delivered, there just seems to be so much genuinity compared yeah. to what you see with Cena. Like I can almost only compare Austin and his versus Vince. You know, right at the Attitude Era run where I can think of a baby face that really felt like the core of the working man of the middle America, you know, middle income, you know, really the audience that wrestling mostly attracts. I'd I'd say Dusty and Austin are the two that really come to mind that really personify that. No, I thought that was all very eloquent, Uh, Chad. um, Yeah, obviously a true legend of the business, dusty like i mean there's no like he's like you know only once in a lifetime do you get a character like that right um you know you hear all of the stories about him you know we know he was flair's hero coming into the business and all of this sort of thing so a really influential guy that i think a lot of like guys in the business looked up to as well um i, I would say i mean just going back to what you uh, were saying about the way he connected uh for you when you're growing up and um like, so, I mean, obviously, um, in this country, things are uh, slightly different. You know, I think class is a bigger thing here than it is in the States. Like the like the distinction between the the, the working class and the middle class and, uh, and all of that. Um, but I think that um, Dusty had that sort of charisma that would definitely get over. Like, if you just picked up Dusty, his, just his entire act, and put him in all of those like working man's halls and stuff that they were working in that, you know, you could stick him in there against Jim Brakes, say, right. as long as you allow him some time on the mic. So as long as like the fans could hear him speak and deliver like a promo, I think you could get over anywhere, any, anywhere in the, anywhere in the world where they can speak English. I can't see Dusty not getting over because he has that kind of, um, exactly what you were saying Chad that kind of earthiness that you know he's going to connect with anybody who's from a blue collar background I think Um, in a way that you know there's not too many figures in the business that you can that you can think of who connected in that way like you know you pointed to Austin I'd also point to Bruno of course yeah Um, yeah. but there's there's really not that many you know where where you could where you could see him sitting down and having like dinner with your family and everybody getting on with him, you know. And he's he's a character. He, obviously, Dusty's a big character as well. Um, and people love that, you know. He had a natural charisma. So um, I do see him as a guy who'd get over absolutely anywhere, um, anywhere that he'd, he'd get over today. I think, even um, even though he doesn't have the look really that you'd expect of um, of a wrestler. I mean, you could you we can't talk about Dusty without noting that he is a pretty fat guy right Jen? yeah sure but i actually think that's part of it you know that's that's part of his 
relatability if you want it's like well he's not you know yeah. do you know what I mean by that yeah. oh yeah I mean I, on, on a, I mean Kevin Owens is a guy coming up in WWE right now and he's in a feud with John Cena and we don't know what Kevin Owens's career will entail but you know just in the present he's a guy that you know doesn't have a good physique quote unquote I mean he looks about like how I look physically and but but his character connects to where it's still getting over and I mean you know I, he's not as over as Dusty was in his peak but that's that's kind of that same I, I do think that's a that's a that's an exception these type of individuals they're not the rule and and Dusty's number one in that regard to me as far as people that don't look like wrestlers that still were ultimately successful in wrestling and kind of overcame that yeah and i, I mean i was talking about whether we'd get over here i just think you have to look at like big daddy to see that yeah well that too like yeah. basically he basically like i mean big, big daddy is basically like dusty but half the, like not even like a quarter of the talker and not even like a one millionth of the worker, right? So, oh yeah. And I know everybody does talk about it, but if we can't talk about it um, at any time, we, we'd have to talk about it today, right? Is the uh, is the Hard Times promo. I mean, I know it's yeah. kind of like overplayed and everybody talks about it, but man, that's got to be like top three promo of all time, possibly even top promo of all time. Would you agree? Yeah. I, I, well, and the, the... That is a five-star promo and to be honest i don't know if that's my favorite dusty promo i, I him right. asking dustin to be his partner in 1994 oh yeah that is, is really i mean job. i mean those two promos i that those are probably two of my top 10 promos in wrestling history uh, which Dusty has, but the, the Hard Times promo is just absolutely tremendous. Well, it's, 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 it. a, it's a masterpiece, right? That Because it's like, well, how many times, like, and I know, I mean, if I had to pick my, like, my top promo, it would probably be Flair, and he's had a lot of memorable ones and things. Right. But, like, I don't know if I can, like, pick, like, a Flair promo, which is just so encapsulated as that. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, that Hard Times yeah, promo I, seems I mean, to, like... I, yeah, when you think about Flair, to me, like on the mic, like the most memorable moment is probably him returning in Nitro in '98. Honestly, yeah, and that yeah, was no, kind of unfiltered, uh, you know, unhinged. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I agree with that because, like, the '80s ones are all kind of like of a piece. You know, like they're all cool and stuff, but they're all kind of of a, like nothing. Kind of is encapsulated like that. Hard times one for me, right. but you're right. I do think of that '98 one as well. Anyway, that's probably quite a lot of Dusty, um, and I'm sure there'll be lots of other shows uh, covering like Dusty in some detail. Yeah, I think um, probably before or maybe right around when this show is posted, um, I think there's going to be a, a podcast with Chris Zellner, a special exile on Bad Street uh, yeah. over Dusty, and then also on the uh, Place to Be feed, I think there may even be a, a special show about dusty too so yeah people and it, can reminisce there i know we're i know we're also recording a, a titans on the weekend I'm, I'm sure they'll they'll want to take the first half hour or so to right uh so you can hear many many different takes on uh on sure. dusty um oh one more thing uh 
I should mention that 1989 one he has in uh, in WF. You have to give it to him, okay? Against all the odds, there, like he was getting ribbed. He was given an awful gimmick. He was given an awful uh, valet, <laughs> and he still managed to get over and get himself over in that situation. I, I, I do think it's probably like the lowest kind of. If you had to do a trajectory of Dusty Career, it's not his finest hour, but. Really, like in that context, I think he did. He did himself proud in that one year he had in WF as well. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah. yeah, so so one of the other things I wanted to mention about Dusty Chad was um, that he he was kind of like if you look at the other stars of the seventies, um, there aren't many baby faces who did what he did. Like so, you get like your traveling heels like Ernie Ladd or. Ivan Koloff or um, you know those guys who'd go from territory to territory they'd, they'd have a main event run for like three four months and then they move on to the next place um, you don't really see baby faces doing that most of the time the baby faces were like homesteaders essentially you know like you'd think of I don't know Tommy Rich in Georgia or um, Lawler in Memphis or right. you know you, you think of the local baby face and then the traveling heel would come or you know Bob, Bruno or Bob Backlund in New York say um, Dusty was one of the few faces who could basically go anywhere like he'd get booked almost like Andre would get booked and I, I think that's a kind of but like and, and in fact when Andre got injured uh, in New York they actually brought in Dusty, like kind of to replace like to replace like Andre on the card type thing. So I, I think that's a quite an interesting a uh, little kind of wrinkle to uh, Dusty's career that people might not remark on that he was kind of that level of star uh, in the in the seventies and arguably like the closest thing that you could get apart from Andre to a national star at that time. So something to think about. Yeah, it's it's interesting that he was sort of he was sort of pegged at times in that special attraction role. Yeah, and um, it's almost like with most other individuals in that role, they had sort of a larger than life uh, kind of. I guess I don't know if it's like a gimmick or you know their size and stuff like that, or something very unique about them physically. Or uh, you know, even like a Muda, and on a shorter sense, you know, have a mask or something, mil maskerous at times. But I, th- I think this is a bigger level than that. And Dusty, in contrast to those guys, you know, we talked about his physique a little bit, but it seems like he really kind of got over and was placed in that role based on sort of his persona. So yeah. it's kind of a larger than life personality, which seems very odd. Yeah, because it's, it's not like he'd always have mic time to come in, or like often it'd just be spot shows, you know, that he'd right, just come in right. for the big show. But like if you look, he was booked in, um, he'd even have like, he was booked in like the the New Orleans uh, Superdome shows. He'd just come in for one spot. Um, he was booked up in MSG. Uh, so he was like, it's not just that he was a star in Florida and uh, Georgia and that was it and Crockett you know he he was basically a star everywhere he went so i think that's something to just think about with uh with dusty that he was actually big time in the 70s as well as in that mid Cause I, I think there's a uh, perception for some fans to think of dusty in the mid 80s right the flesh sure. sure um but he was actually like a really significant star in the 
70s and that's something that can be overlooked sometimes when you're considering him you know you think of the you think of the flair opponent and the booker before you think of the the kind of big star of the 70s all right so shall we shall we take a break chan and when we come back we can talk about this uh, tag maybe promotional consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope Place of Nation's Justin Rosero here. In addition to The Kevin Kelly Show, we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes and placemanation.com. You can check out myself and Scott Criscolo on The Mothership, The Place to Be Podcast, home of great interviews and our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. If you need your fix of current wrestling talk, we have plenty of options for you there, including Main Events, which features a roundtable discussion led by PTBN analysts and special guests, our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, including immediate feedback and discussion for WWE, NXT, Ring of Honor, and New Japan Super Shows, and Wrestling with Optimism, which focuses on the positives of the business. Also, be sure to relive wrestling's past with Graham Cawthon's excellent exclusive History of Wrestling podcast, Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave's Wrestling Culture podcast, our monthly pay-per-view rewind roundtable series led by Ben Morse, and the Dangerous Alliance podcast starring myself and Pro Wrestling Only's Will, diving into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. Sports fans have plenty to dive into as well. We feature The Extra Point with Scott Criscolo and Dr. G, The Kings of Sport featuring live audio wrestling's godfather Nate Milton, The Sports Sound hosted by Cowboy and Cowboy Sr., as well as the NBA Team Podcast, which takes year-round deep dive into pro hoops. PTBN also proudly features Richard and the Mailman Podcast, which specializes in the world of TV, thought leadership, anger, and irreverence. As mentioned, all these shows are available on PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. PTBN's also home to the tremendous in-depth features on pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, Scott Keats, RSPWFAQ.com blog, and Piledriver.net. The Place to Be Nation and Pro Wrestling Only are proud to present the PWO PTBN Podcast Network. Join us for a variety of great shows that explore all the facets of professional wrestling. Join good old Will from Texas for our Place to Be Nation reaction shows and Goodwill Wrestling, which has been kicking since before JR had barbecue sauce. Listen to where the big boys play and join Chad and Parv as they discuss classic NWA and WCW pay-per-view. And take in one of our newest podcasts, Exile on Bed Street, and allow Chris Zellner to give you a history lesson about important moments in wrestling's colorful past. Listen to Johnny, Pete, Parv, and Kelly, the titans of wrestling, as they examine in-depth the history of the WWF in the 1970s and 1980s. And then there's Brain Buster, the wrestling game show, Tag Teams Back Again, the Pro Wrestling Super Show, the All Japan Excite Series, and the Super Extreme Vault for some EC Dub, EC Dub. You can hear all of these great podcasts and more on one feed. Remember, PWO, PTBN Podcast Network, part of the Place to Be Nation family. Okay, um, so let's get on to this match now. Dusty and Dustin Rhodes taking on um, uh, Sato and Doug. Is this the first time the two of them tagged uh, in um, WCW, like after? Is this actually the first time Dusty even worked? Seems like it to me. I'm trying to think if they did anything when Dustin 
came in in 90 and did like the bull we had the bull drop in and all that junk um I don't think so I don't because D- D- Dusty hasn't like been on I mean, screen or anything has he yeah I mean Dusty well he was that announcer he's he's done some commentating did Wrestle War and did that clash uh when he returned in early 1991 but, uh, yeah, I don't think, um... I kind of get the sense his wings were clipped a little bit when he came back. You know, it's like he kind of came back from New York and, he, you know, the point had been made and he was no longer... But he, I kind of got the sense that he's he's not quite the kind of the, the man anymore in the office, you know? Yeah, yeah, I don't think he'd worked a match at all um, from this, uh, from Royal Rumble 91 to this. Right. So it'd been about a year. Yeah, a lot. Uh, and I uh, didn't really notice much ring rust. Uh, I didn't anyway, but yeah. what did you make of the match, Chad? Um, well, <laughs> not to put a damper on everything, but this wasn't <laughs> my favorite match in the world. I, I thought, uh, now Dustin, uh, I think, is someone interesting to discuss here. Uh, because I did not think he looked very good in this match. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he... he botched that leapfrog early on and i felt he looked really green i mean kim duck is a worker kind of a journeyman worker that i'm not too familiar with haven't watched much from him uh probably only a handful of matches from his career but but this seemed like a match to me that you had saito and dusty kind of doing their stick and getting the crowd going a good bit with their stuff Mm -hmm. and then not a lot else going on and then that's one thing, I mean, I guess with the greatest wrestler ever, this has been kind of accelerated, but, I mean, Dustin, to me, is someone that would be struggling to make my top 100. I mean, he may make it, but he may not. It's certainly not a guarantee. Yeah, I, I've seen people talk about him as like a top 10 or top or, 20. And yeah, like that, top, that seems mental top to me. half, to me, seems... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm I'm kind of with you there, Chad. I'm not kind of uh, I do I do like him. Don't get me wrong, but I I just think that's kind of going a bit too far. Right. You know what I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, at him. So so the, I guess the 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 result of this was I enjoyed Saito and Dusty doing their thing, but this felt very inconsequential again, and I gave it two stars. I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of with you. I really enjoyed the exchanges between Dusty and uh, Sato. I thought they got the crowd going, and um, Dusty even did a suplex on Sato at one point. Did you see that? Um, so that that was kind of a little bit, you know, fairly surprising. Um, uh, what was the stuff with Sato refusing the tag early on? I didn't really get that. I was kind of like, was that like a Korean and a Japanese? Not not really seeing eye to eye. Um, and then. Um. Yeah. So, are you there, Chad? Yeah, I don't know if yeah. him and Duck had rivalries with each other, um, or what the deal was with that. It was it was odd. But I mean, like, I mean, have you watched any Kim Duck before? Or if you could, could you recall it? Um. Yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him crop crop up. Like he's a guy who's been around for some time. You know. Like, yeah. I, I may have even seen him in the seventies match. I want to say, but yeah, I, I, I think he definitely has some like maybe maybe something with briscoe i don't know if you i, I need to yeah, see I, I, no i think he's like because he's he's a regular in the um 
um, I think he's in like the real uh, the real world tag league, but like the team uh. that the, the team that doesn't win any matches type thing. Like like he's usually a partner in one of them, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, I thought Dustin's flying lariat looked all right when he did it. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, this was all about, uh, the two older, like the two senior guys in the team for me, right. uh, which are kind of fitting for Japan. Um, yeah, I gave it, uh, I gave it three, Chad, so. Oh man, man, alive. <laughs> Maybe I was in a three, a three star kind of mood. This is you know? a poor star rating bonanza here. <laughs> well, I thought it was always perfectly enjoyable, you know. Okay. I'm not as uh, maybe I'm being influenced by like uh, Kelly and Johnny Chad who just like everything, you know. So I, I, I just, I just, I, so for the record, this match was better than El Dandy versus uh, Angel Azteca in your mind. <clears throat> um, I enjoyed it more. <laughs> okay, it was over a lot quicker. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> what's that? What's that line that people are busting out now? You know. Uh, uh, what's it? Different strokes. What, what's the one? Uh, different strokes <laughs> for different fucks. I don't know. Yeah, I, it was all right, you know. That may maybe maybe two and a half. Uh, okay, you've talked me down, Chad. Two and a half. Two and a half. Okay, the, the, so. the the popular the popular <laughs> phrase on pro wrestling only the past couple of weeks has been "great match theory." That is, uh, God, y- yeah. you can't encounter a thread where that doesn't get thrown out there. Yes. Um... Okay. This, this match would certainly not be a case uh, if, you, if your champion Dustin is top twenty in uh, greatest wrestler ever. Well, this is a match you can throw up because it's certainly not a great match. But I don't—I didn't think a great performance from Dustin either. So well, there you well, have it. Speaking of uh, great match theory, Chad, <laughs> do you think there's any great match theory that can uh, argue that this next one, Vader versus El Gigante, is a great match? <laughs> yeah, this, this is a pile of shit. Was, this match was awful. Um, and I, I appreciate I appreciate that the crowd dumps on it yeah. when they realize what happens at the finish. So, so I mean, basically, like Vader, he's a he's a bully and he does great power moves. Well, Gigante can't take any of those, so as a result, you get some. Generic fighting punches, kicks. Uh, that, that was about it. Just some stuff. Kicks. He kicks. I mean, El Gigante just kind of falls down, and Vader starts kicking him. W- and, w- weren't you willing to stiff him more? Because I was. Yes. Yes. I, <laughs> and then, and then you get the finish, which again is just a complete disgrace. Where they just, they just wander out to the outside, and I mean they're right there at the ring too, and the the guys counting right in front of their face, and they just they just continue kind of haphazardly punching each other with not a lot of heat, and then the bell rings and the crowd. Completely craps on that. Vader tries to salvage it a little bit by uh, dragging Gigante and sticking him into the horn of his helmet or whatever. Uh, I think this was one of the worst matches, honestly, we've seen on these shows. I gave it a quarter (laughs) star. And, you you know, Dud to me is even more rare than five stars in my ranking so so this was absolutely atrocious probably a worst match of the year contender for sure for 1992 
I'm a little bit surprised that Enoki allowed Vader to be seen in this kind of like because he was a big star. In yeah, Vader, I, I, I wonder. I wondered if this was a WCW doing more than New Japan. I would guess so. But why? I mean, at this point, did they not know what they had in Gigante? I mean, they just let Vader go over. It's weird, isn't it? And to think like that this wasn't the end of his career. Like he still had a WrestleMania in him. Right. It's like this is nuts. Um, yeah, no, I agree, Chad. Uh, I don't know about a rating. I, um, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, it's, but, it's, it's bad. But it's, um, yeah. it's Night Stalker bad almost. It is. Yeah. I I do feel like we've probably seen where, like who is those guys? Iron and Iron. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean the Iron Eagle and uh, yeah. Alan Iron Eagle. Who, I mean, who that's, is that? Who was that guy from the pool hall? The Motor City oh, Madman. Oh, yeah, Motor City Madman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen, we've seen some crap, Chad, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this this is down there. Might be a bottom five where right. the big boys play match. Um, um, did, did we do El Gigante Sid already? Was that a match? Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we watched that one from Super Brawl. I don't even think this was... I thought this was kind of worse than that. Maybe it's just because it's Vader, and you know he could do so much more, something so cooler. I mean, I mean, like a Vader-Hashimoto match from around this time would just be juicy. And, you know, Hashimoto on this card faces Bill Kazmaier in a match that didn't air. So... You you got probably the two best workers on the show overall uh, facing just two complete duds. So so that's that's a waste. All right, well, well let's let's move on, Chad. I reckon uh, because this next match um, is Lex Luger back from the back from uh, having left. <laughs> um, still the champion, I think. Yeah, um, and he's taking on Chono, one of the one of the three musketeers, of course, um, and the most kind of over or famous of them, would you say, of the um, mm. like within the New Japan context for those fans? I don't think so. Actually, no? I, I, it's it's weird. I I actually may put him. I think there's a, a New Japan ranking. And then there's a U.S. ranking, and I, I think actually with the New Japan ranking, he may be number three. Really? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, where Hashimoto was really over, and yeah, I mean Chono still drew beyond Hashimoto. But well, wasn't when, Chono presented as like the star? That was always my impression. Uh, no? Hashimoto was certainly given more of an ace type run. Right in okay. like ninety six, ninety seven ish. Right, uh, and even in ninety four, I mean Hashimoto's the one that defeated Tenru to end the war feud. Uh, Sumo Hall. I mean, uh, Ch- Chono was really hot here because he was just coming off winning the G one when him and Mudo kind of made themselves, you know, in that great. Uh, uh, that's a, that's an absolute outstanding match. Probably the best match I think from New Japan in the nineteen nineties. This is the G1 Climax uh, final from 1991 between Muda and uh, Chono. Okay. Uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting where they're all kind of three. I mean, I think Muda, from a notoriety standpoint, is number one. And then from almost a presentation ace, it's it's Hashimoto at times. So Chono, while he was, I mean, certainly there and lateral in, in some ways, he feels to me like uh, maybe the Kabashi of the group in a little bit. Right, okay. Yeah. Well, do, do, do you think that, do you think maybe my perception comes from his... Um nwo affiliation and yeah that, I, I think that that's one from like i mean u.s i think if you're a, a semi-casual u.s fan like thinking about somebody like scott and justin they would obviously know uh, muda and then chono and then hashimoto would be much you know much much lower uh right. just based on the u.s notoriety well, anyway, um, as this match starts, Luger was booed pretty loudly, I thought, which I thought was <laughs> quite interesting that uh, the, the crowd would actually boo uh, Luger that loudly. He was pretty over as a heel, as it were. All right. um, JR mentions uh, that he was a referee. Um, he act like You don't hear JR mention his referee days that much. Right. And uh, he says he officiated a lot of Jack Briscoe matches. <laughs> and then uh, Tony Schiavone says that he, he thinks that uh, Briscoe may be the greatest of all time. And they, they talk about Jack Briscoe for a good, like, uh, three, four minutes here, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting of Tony. Yeah. Because, I mean, how familiar... I mean, I guess Tony would be semi-familiar. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I guess it's a little bit of evidence that Tony was a fan before he became a part of the business, because that must have been before Tony's time. Yeah, I mean, well, when Tony... Um, Tony did a podcast with JR about a year ago. Yeah, I know we talked about going to like the Richmond Coliseum and Greensboro, watching the matches uh, before he got in the business. So, so that's another reason. I mean, that's one thing with like Tony. It's so sad at how I guess checked out and his his fires completely extinguished for wrestling now. Because it does feel like in his life he had two loves: baseball and wrestling, and just after. The WCW flame out. I mean, wrestling was completely exonerated I, I, from his life. I always got the impression that Tony was a legit fan, like um, just listening to his commentary. And I just think this is one neat little insight. Of course, right. they could be completely working, but I, like I just cannot imagine like Sean Mooney saying that, for example. Yeah, like, like, like uh, or, or Eric Bischoff say, you know, like yeah, guys who just have praise, clue, you know? Mooney praising <laughs> Nature Boy Buddy Rogers on a Coliseum home video or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, just before we get into this uh, match, Chad, was it just me, or was Luger making an awful lot of strange noises during this match? Like, what the fuck <laughs> was going on? I did really make a note of that, but now that you're saying, well, he, he also like he suffers this weird kind of injury with his arm that yeah. happens midway through, and it, it was almost like it was a legit injury because I mean Chono was working over the the forearm, but like not that much, um, and then he goes back to it. So I don't know if Luger was just like making it well known what he wanted Chono to focus on or. It's, it's something. It was. It was. It was a kind of. This was a bizarre. I'd say Luger performance where I what would guess the, he was calling this match. But what were the noises though, Chad? He was like because Luger's like one of those guys who's quite loud in the ring. Yeah, like, yeah. And he breathes heavily, but in this match he was going like. <laughs> 
Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what the, was he doing? He wasn't doing his normal yelps. <laughs> uh. I, I was just wondering, like, because you know he, like, obviously, like, weighed more. And you think mm-hmm. he was just working so hard here that he was literally, like, so gassed, so kind of blown up that he was, like, literally kind of starting to, like, I don't know what he was doing, but it was, biz- like, one so of the It was like a robot shutting down. It was yeah. combusting. <laughs> You know, 4% body fat. He's literally... <laughs> gonna... <laughs> uh, but he did, I thought, really work pretty hard here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Against I, Jono. I, th- I think he clearly was working harder and, I guess, better than the Super Brawl performance versus Sting. Um, Absolutely. Which I know he also, he, also, he, he also looked leaner. I reckon he, he must have stacked on some muscle. Yeah, even, yeah. even in the month between that and this match. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought this match was, was good, uh, actually, um, you know, f- pretty basic rudimentary and it didn't go long, but I thought they made a uh, good work of their time. I, I mean, sometimes with Chono matches, there's a sense of a lot of time has passed and not a lot's happened. Uh, that, that can be a tendency of Chono where... There's just there's just not excitement. I, I mean, he's he's got some amateur wrestling background, and um, I mean the wrestling is technically sound, but there's just not a a lot of kind of body focused work going. Or you know, you can watch a match and it's been a half hour of your life, and you can barely remember you know what just happened. He has yeah. that tendency here. I, th- I thought it was interesting, like, where he did work the arm of legs. He kind of went out the uh, leg and then in the uh, later stages and then fired back. And then they had a pretty interesting finishing stretch, I thought, where Luger kind of progressively started healing up more. Yeah. And then uh, he gets Chono in the rack and they tumble to the outside. And then they end up going back in, and Luger, you know, pretty much says the hell with this and low blows Chono, um, with with in kind of a fun move, and then comes off with a a double sm- axe smash from the middle rope, and pins him. Um, which he, I mean, I guess this match was for the WCW Championship, but even that that felt like an interesting booking decision to me. Uh, that Luger pinned this big name from Japan that was had a lot of momentum. And at this point in time, they knew, you know, Luger was on his way out. Uh, so, so it seemed very odd. I don't know who they could have put Luger up against, but even somebody like a Koshinaka or Scott Norton, or I, I would think maybe somebody lower down the card since they knew that Luger was, uh, was, you know, going out. Yeah, no. The, just one uh, little little question here, um, Ricky Choshu. Was he a babyface or a heel at this time, or is, is there is there just not possible to say that? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think there's a true. Uh, or is it's, it's like Choshu is just Choshu and transcends yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, that's what. I, that's what I, 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 I just wonder if it's a if it's a case of car positioning. Like just just considering what happens in the next match, right? Well, champion goes over here. You know, title switch in the next match, basically. <laughs> like that, that's the only way I can rationalize it. Um, uh, but like the fact they picked Chono, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah. Or Luger, of course, may have said, well, look, I'm not going over to Japan unless I'm, unless I'm going the clean win or whatever. Right. Could have been an instance of Luger kind of big timing or something. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, I actually thought that this was a pretty, uh, you know, the near fours were pretty exciting, weren't they? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, that's right. Uh, the match seemed to really connect with the crowd, which helped. Uh, Trona was really clearly over, I thought. Uh, Luger was surprisingly over as a heel. He was like more over as a heel than Larry Zabisco was. Um, I thought it was a pretty enjoyable match. So where'd you go with your star rating, Chad? I went uh, three stars and did the par special here. <laughs> well, Chad, I have gone three and a half. There you go. So I thought it was good. No. You know, one thing I just I just looked up, I was looking at the history, the lineage of uh, the IWGP title, mm-hmm. and you realize Chono only, he did not hold the belt until 1998. Wow, that is later than I thought. I mean, I mean he got that belt after uh, Kawada, you know, won the Triple Crown, and people thought Kawada won it so late, uh... When he when he won it, and then I think that's his only reign. Let me double check here, but yeah, one uh, time. I'm pretty sure one that's time. that's it. So forty four days is all he held the uh, IWGP. Why well, did, did he even? He was an NWA champ, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, Trono at yep. one point in uh, well late ninety two. Hmm, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe another reason why U.S. fans kind of uh, have him on their radar. Cause it's, right. Uh, hmm, yeah, that is, uh, that's a little bit surprising uh, to me as well. I th- I'd have thought you'd have held it more times than that. Yeah, and I knew I didn't remember certainly a lengthy, memorable reign with him. But, yeah, that was even surprising to me. Fujinami worked uh, pretty late on, didn't he? Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah, considering how like he seemed to be done in like the early nineties, he, he well, still. Uh... We'll, we'll get to that with. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess that's our next match, so I don't know if you want to segue. Yeah, well, let, let's get on to it then. Um, it's Fujinami taking on Ricky Choshu. Now, now, uh, back in two thousand and eleven, Chad, I I watched this uh, when I got the ninety two uh, yearbook, mm-hmm. and it didn't do a lot for me then. Um, okay. I thought. Um, and uh, it, I really thought the match was missing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is testament to my mood, but I liked her a bit better this time. But uh, okay. what did you think? Um, well, I mean, this is kind of your storied New Japan rivalry of the 1980s uh, from, a, from a single standpoint. They mm-hmm. had, I don't know how many matches together, marquee matches. I, I, I think it's about seven or eight. I've seen all of them. I think they're all... Uh, very good to great. I, I, it's it's a it's an in ring rivalry where I think some individuals like Dylan and Childs may be uh, higher on it than me slightly. Or D- D- Dylan is a Fujinami guy, I would say. Yes, like he really, yes. really and, does and, really and Childs is a Choshu guy. Um, right. So so I, I, I got the vibe just when I watched the nineteen eighty three and nineteen eighty four. Uh, singles matches between them. I mean, I mean, I drink some of those at four stars and uh, four and a quarter. But, but kind of to compare it to again, your all Japan feuds like your Masawa and Kawadas. I, I, I certainly didn't think they had any singles matches that approached five stars. 
And uh, if you look at the Masawa Kawada feud from a just a great match perspective, I'd have the six three ninety four seven twenty four ninety five, and uh, a few you know a few other matches up there with the best match that I've seen from Fujinami and Chosu. So so this match kind of feels like the uh, I guess the nightcap of this robbery in some ways yeah. where it, it's almost as like a 94 flare steamboat vibe. But I mean, it feels more important than that, I would say, but kind of get that vibe. Just to go back a, a little bit, Chad, maybe a fair comparison um, to the old Japan might be Choshu in the mid eighties against uh, Jumbo and co. Yeah. Um, like, how does the Fujinami stuff compare with that, would you say? Yeah, so Chosu versus Jumbo is one of those weird single feuds of two guys. Maybe even more so than Hanson. You know, I, I mean, Jumbo and Hanson had that one match in October 86 that people, you know, almost universal praise. And I yeah. love that match. But the other Hanson Jumbo matches seem to be kind of in that, you know, three and a half star, three star mm. vein. You know, not terrible by any means, but when you're talking about two workers that a lot of people rank top five of all time, it's not that classic great rivalry that you hope for. I would say Chosu versus Jumbo is maybe even more disappointing. They had a one hour draw that didn't do a lot for me at all. Um, the Chosu versus Tenru matches, the two with the 85 and 86, I liked better. But again, thought they were, uh, I, I mean, it, it's tough to say because it, it, it is, I mean, here's the word, great match theory. I think Chosu really puts that to the test at times because in that Tenru matches, he, he's very good in them. And he's certainly a minimalist worker in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and so everything he does in those matches is good, but they do top out, you know, at like the three and a half, three and three quarters. I'd have to look at my all Japan rankings. So they're not they're not quote unquote great matches. But you see, like in my, my when I think back on that feel, I'd think of the tags. Yeah, oh yeah. I think definitely the tags from Chosu's run in all Japan, the tags are what set it apart. Wait, and is that is that just because Yatsu was that good? Because, like, um, is he well, the differentiator well, I mean, here? I don't. I mean, Chosu and Jumbo in the tags was significantly better than them in a singles. Yeah, I'd agree it was with kind that. of a lot. It was just an odd kind of context. For some reason, they didn't uh, match well in singles. I get irritated by a scorpion, to be honest. Yeah, he. It's something. I mean, it's something he goes to, and it's not. At times, it's not a. Uh, I mean, it can be used as a transitional, almost like a chin lock move in his arsenal. It it really can be in times. He he's somebody that's going to be very tough to rank for me overall. I mean, I, I think he'll make my top one hundred. I'm almost assured, but I don't know where. I remember. I remember when I first saw him. I thought like this dude is like the Japanese rock or something. Right. Like he makes. He makes everything seem like a bigger deal when he's around. That's, I, I think that's his kind of weird quality, Shoshu. Okay, but yeah. I don't know about I don't know about his actual kind of like work. <laughs> yeah. it, it, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, what? Well, let's get back to this match. Um, 
I thought it was pretty paced, uh, pretty like worked at a much faster pace than I remember uh, from this match. Like, it was pretty heated, Chad, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's almost worked like a. I wouldn't say it's a sprint, but they don't go very long, and that's one interesting and cool thing about their rivalry in the eighties. Is I mean, none of the matches they had went you know thirty plus minutes between these two, but they all were very heated, very compact. Uh, the moves meant a lot. So here you had a, some of that where, um, you know, I mean, they started out with some basic mat work, then kind of went to reversal. At one point in time, Fujinami actually gets this scorpion on Chosu, which I liked was kind of a reversal of fortune in a way for Chosu. Uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then we got, uh, there seemed to be a lot of submissions in this match where Fujinami locked on his dragon sleeper. He got the octopus clutch on at different times. And then eventually we got more bombs with uh, some top rope at a superplex. Yeah. Which I thought was a, you know, a cool move and really well timed for a nice high spot. And then Chosu kind of essentially hulks up a little bit after, Fujinami fends him off for a bit more and hits his uh, running lariats and picks up the win here. And and Fujinami in the 90s, I guess we can discuss him a little bit too. And then it's interesting in the 80s, some people would call him one of the better workers of Japan or even, you know, maybe in Dylan's case, the best worker in Japan in the 80s. And, well, 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 Dylan thinks he's the best worker in the world in the 80s. Right. And, uh, I mean, I don't think he's that, but I don't think he's that far off either from what I've seen. And his 90s stuff is just, from from the snippets I've seen going through the years, it's just... One, not at the tip-top level, and two, just pretty inconsistent. Um, so, so it's an interesting thing where he does. I mean, he does still have some good matches, including this one. I, I ranked this; my star rating was three and a fourth. Uh, I thought I thought this was a good match, and you know, did you just of, say three and a quarter? Yes, what your a favorite rating. What a ridiculous rating! <laughs> In between good what's and the, very good. What's the point? <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, three and a quarter. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I like this. I thought this was a good capper to the rivalry, and it still felt like Chozu. I think at this point in time had more in the tank, so him getting the win here felt appropriate. Yeah, not a classic, but enjoyable, I thought. Uh, three and a half. Okay. So, there we go. Um, yes. So, let's get on to the great Muta and Sting then, taking on the Steiners. Um, yes. So, one of the weird things that somebody wrote is, replace Lex Luger with the great Muta, and surely you get an improvement on an already classic match. It doesn't quite work like that. That's what somebody said. I think it was like Dark Pegasus guy on four one one. Well, replace Lex Luger with the Great Muta, uh, Chad. And what do you get? Well, I don't. I, I'm assuming you have not seen the Japanese version of this, uh, but there are some of the best entrances you've um, ever seen in your life. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, was it cut out with the version that I said? Yeah, the, the Turner version didn't have it, but the uh, version I've watched um, for this, because I remember the entrances, they get sung out by a rock band and have the pyro, the whole nine yards. It's uh, it's quite a scene. 
Um, I mean, I mean, this match, it, it's it's a bomb fest. I mean, it's your Steiner bomb fest. Is it a cloud crowd pleasing match? Yes. Uh, did I think the match was great? No. Uh, thought it was executed fine. There's a lot of stuff in it that could be annoying when you start to think about it. Um, I know, and I did read the pro wrestling only thread, and this was something I made a note of while watching the match. But I mean, Rick does that top rope bulldog almost immediately. (laughs) Like, I mean, within two minutes of tagging in, uh, he performs that to Sting to not much selling at all. I mean, there is some very beautiful moves where Rick Steiner gives Muda just a great German suplex to take over uh, in the first place. And then he ends up later on in the uh, kind of tail end of the match. He catches Muda in his handspring elbow and gives him another German suplex, which was just a great, that's (laughs) just a great spot. Um, I, I certainly thought this was a a very good spot fest, but I I, I I seem to have a I guess capper on how high I rank those matches and my enjoyment. Where I just I've, I kind of equate this to a summer popcorn movie. I mean, is it fun to watch? Yes, but is it something I'm gonna be calling like Oscar worthy? No, and so. Mm-hmm. Kind of appropriately, I've I've went and I'm trying to remember what I went for the last year's matches and also the Super Brawl tag, because um, I, I did think this one was comparable to that. Mm, interesting for me. Um, so mm. yeah, I, I did the uh, dreaded uh, three and a quarter for this one as well. Well, I mean, as you know, Chad, I'm a bigger fan of those matches than you are. Yeah, I went four and a half on both of them. Right? Oh man. Uh, and uh, I stand by those ratings. This is not a match on those on on the level of those. It has quite a lot of things wrong with it. I thought that those matches don't like. So the bulldog from the top by Rick. I don't think that's a problem in itself. He's going for a quick win. I mean, they they, they Tony and Jr. called it. You know, he's trying to spring a quick win because he, he knows he's up against Sting here. Okay, but then basically Sting no sold that. Yeah. Top rope bulldog, yeah. okay? Then we get power bomb, tilt a whirl power bomb, okay? And um Sting basically no sells that as well. <laughs> so I mean like I need I I really think that that is on Sting, not on the Steiners, right? Like if if you take a top rope bulldog, you can't act as if nothing's happened. I actually think Sting needed to sell a lot more for the Steiners. Like you you know, if they were going if they were going for that if he was going to be like facing peril or something, like I don't understand, like that opening yeah, is terrible. Yeah, I, I mean he could have tagged out. I mean Muda's the one that took the quote unquote heat section of this match. Yeah, and I, I he certainly could have tagged out, and like even if he'd have just hung out, like hampered over in the on the apron, it'd have been a lot more effective. I mean, he, Sting took total pounding in the opening of this match, and he acted like it was completely nothing. Right. Which is just like, I don't even understand what he was doing there. Which which doesn't happen in those other matches that I'm talking about. Like, at least the offense has impact in those matches. 
Um, we got a. There were some cool things. There was a little bit of psychology, Chad. Right, I've noted this just for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right, this is. Um, we get a beta back suplex on Muta by Rick, a slide s- slam by Scott, a crucifix from the top rope by Scott. Cool move. A dragon sleeper. That's four moves in a row targeting Muta's neck and upper back. That is psychology. <laughs> so there we go. Um, so yeah, I mean, they did good, fast-paced offense and things, but uh, I really thought the Sting brought this one down a good bit. And the finish, Chad, was complete balls. The the finish <laughs> is one of those weird finishes where who, who did Sting pin? Sting had uh, Scott pinned. At the same time, Rick had Muda pin, which again was odd. I mean, again, WCW's pinning New Japan's two biggest stars here, which is an odd move. But the uh, the referee was counting, which is Bill Alfonso, by the way. He was counting the Sting pin, uh, so Sting and Muda get the get the Duke here. But it, it's one of those kind of cheap. I mean, I don't even know what you're going for in a finish like that. It's it's a confusing finish. I mean, just just have Sting. I don't understand why Sting pinning Scott is such a bad thing at, at, in this juncture. It was confusing and sloppy uh, looking, and yeah. Uh, uh, so I didn't really three stars from each other. Oh wow, uh, I'm higher than so, you. Yeah, I, I'm like, shocked at that. No, I don't. I think you should be shocked. I just think that you're essentially just wrong about the Sting and Luger match, you know. <laughs> um, and what's the, what's the other one I gave for? Was it was it the Doom match? Well, you like the Doom match? Yeah, it, it's the uh, Sasaki. It's from the Super Show uh, from the previous Egg Dome. I, oh I, yeah, I, yeah. I, where they where they where they kick the shit out of that jobber? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, he's not a jobber, is he? But you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a match that everybody needs to see well, at least once. You know, um, uh, that one's the well. It's the Steiners versus Hase and Sasaki, or Sasuke. Yeah. And it and it's uh, Sasaki who just gets the yeah. Like yeah. they basically Inske, him, Sasaki. That was the match of the year quote, uh, last year. Which I, th- I think I did go three and a half on that. Maybe I don't know. I, d- I do think this one with the finish hurts it a bit compared to the other ones. I can't even remember what I did with Super Brawl now, but I seem to recall I went higher than three and a quarter. Um, I mean, this one I thought the moves were Chris. Like I mean, the bumps that Muda did on all of the Steiner's power moves looked really good. Especially those German suplex. I mean, he folded up like an accordion. Just really nasty. But uh, there, there were a lot of cool spots. Like, they gave us the, um, like, their version of the Doomsday device. Right, the right. With it. The, the elbow. We had the uh, yeah. top rope angle slam. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, was, there was that flapjack slam thing they did on the turnbuckle by Rick. Yep. I thought that was a cool spot, yep. you know. So there was a lot. And the handstand, the German out of the handstand was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, that's know, a great so. spot. Um, but but yeah, I, I just thought it had enough to really like bring the rating down for me. Um, Sting did a tombstone pile driver at one point as well, which was kind of uh, you don't see him do all the time, right? So so overall, Chad, um, I went three or ish about on basically every match here. Um, what did you make of this? Yeah, so I, again, it's a it's a show that I, I wasn't, I guess, offended by most of it, except for Gigante and Vader. 
But uh, but it's also a show to kind of compare it to a modern show that just happened. I mean, the uh, the the last WWE Super Show, the Elimination Chamber, had the Cena Owens match, which I personally like better than any match on this card by a a, a, a large margin. And um, you know, it, it had some bad matches too, but nothing as bad as Vader and Gante. And when I finished watching that show, I wasn't saying, you know, with one great match on it and a couple other good to pretty good matches, I wasn't saying that was a thumbs uh, up show by any means. It was either a thumbs in the middle or thumbs down. So I'd, I'd kind of, I'd actually kind of say thumbs down for this one, given the talent. Um, only had it did have three matches that I ranked in the good range, three stars or above, uh, which is not bad because we only had what seven matches on the show that we saw. Um, the other matches we didn't see didn't look promising, but there was just I, I didn't I guess even though big stuff seemed to happen, I didn't get a lot of meat from this show. I guess. Yeah, I think that's, I think this is. I think the word for this show, Chad, is inconsequential. Right. <laughs> uh, as in, this is not something to like. This is for purists only, for completists only, I guess. Right. Because there's nothing really here. It's not bad. Um, I'm going to make a completely left field. Uh, I'm going to make a completely left field comparison that will be lost on 95 percent of listeners. But um, Bob Dylan has an album called "Under the Red Sky." Um, not one of his famous ones. It's completely inoffensive. It's completely fine. You listen to it and it's fine, but you throw it away and forget about it forever. And it's this is basically this show, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's all right while it's on, but like I don't think I'll ever watch it again. <laughs> right, right. Even in our chronologically, I mean, we just came off the uh, hotness of uh, of Super Brawl two, so this show pales in comparison, certainly to that. Like a piece of uh, what do you call it? Uh, I say uh, candy floss. You would say cotton candy, right? You know, like a piece of cotton candy. <laughs> so uh, where where are we going uh, next time? So so next we'll go to a show that certainly is more famous. It's a Russell War nineteen ninety two, which has the War Games, the culmination of the Dangerous Alliance versus WCW feud, uh, also Flying Brian versus Tom Zink. Magic gets a lot of praise, and the uh, poor Steiners whipping up on some Japanese boys. So that'll be an enjoyable time. I, I look forward to that show. I don't think I've watched that full pay per view in years. Uh, so I look forward to watching the whole thing and seeing how the whole pay per view measures up. And at least one, uh, well, one five match, five star match in prospect, at least in my mind. Cause right. It, it really sticks out for me, that one. Because that's uh, the Dangerous Alliance, right? The- yeah, Dangerous Alliance versus Sting Squadron. Yeah, awesome. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.